I told you last week we were going to take a little breather and pull out of Galatians a little bit because last week we caught Peter, the apostle, in the middle of a big mess. A huge mess. A mess that involved racism, self-righteousness, and an apostolic brawl with Peter right dead center in the middle of it. Peter became exhibit A that human hearts never change quickly or easily, even if you're an apostle. So for many of us, Peter shocked you. This was a blow to your worldview on Christianity. In other words, you, you, you can't get your mind, you can't get your heart around the fact that and a godly apostle like that got so messed up like that. And it shakes you. For others of you, this just scares you to death because you think, well, if an apostle can get that messed up, what hope is there for me? So today, what we're going to do is we're going to go way back to the beginning with Peter. We're going to go way back to the initial Peter meets Jesus encounter. We're going to go back to when Peter first got a grace salvation. And our purpose for doing that is twofold. One goal is so that we're not too hard on Peter. Because we're all just like Peter. In other words, Christians, by definition are moving messes. Christians, by definition, are works in progress. So in spite of what some have taught in the church, perfection is a myth in the Christian life. And Galatians really is going to hit that pretty hard once we get into chapter 3. And there are some that have taught and some that speak that there is a sense in which you can attain perfection. And that's exactly what the follow-up team that went into Galatians was after in those churches that Paul had to confront. So I want us to back away and though look at Peter and look at what happened to Peter, but also it's kind of like this. If you get the reality of what you're really like, you become more compassionate towards other people. If we're not compassionate towards other people, it's because we don't really get what we're really like. And so part of it is, if, if Peter's shocking us, that is a tremendous mercy of God to show you that, why are you so shocked? It's like a thermostat in your heart. Why does this bother you so much? That's what God, the Holy Spirit, is after. Why does it bother us so much? Why does that make us so uncomfortable? And the answer, according to the scriptures, is he wants you to see you're just as messed up. And when you get that, There's a tremendous hope there. It's actually the beginning of freedom and the beginning of sanity and the beginning of real hope that wells up within you and the beginning of actually really loving people and being compassionate. Now, our primary goal is this. Well, let's reiterate. Last week's point is the point that we need to hear over and over again. Real Christianity is not great people. There are no great people in real Christianity. Only great grace. There are no great people. Only great grace. Here's our primary goal this morning. It's to encounter Jesus together. 
in a deeply personal way. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, we are, do you know where we're reading from? We're going to Luke, Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Should be in your bulletin. You can follow along with me. It's the same translation I'm using. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Now, the crowd, generally speaking, in the Gospels is never used in a favorable light. The crowd, generally speaking, is after the signs and the wonders. It's after a full belly. It's after a a level of life that doesn't penetrate more deeply to the core of life. Okay? So when you hear crowd, just because a large crowd's going, you don't necessarily say, Woo! Wow! Sometimes that's a polemic for the gospel writer. You figured out this one. This is kind of interesting, though. The crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Well, that's good. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. It's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out from them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when they had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. Exclamation point. But your word, at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled the boats and so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished. Astonished is a mixture of amazement and fear. That's what that word means. So how do you do that? Well, you, you get astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Remember them? They're the the sons of thunder. And who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we all have tremendous, deep waters of longing in our soul this morning. It doesn't matter what race we are. It doesn't matter what sex we are. It doesn't matter how old we are or how young we are. The human heart is the same. The human heart, the human being was made for you. That's our dignity That's our identity. That's what makes us move. And so, Lord, we we know. We know how we run after other things. And it's only grace that reaches the core of our very being 
and makes us alive. And so, Lord, we come to you very desperate, very needy, very helpless, very powerless, not in control. Because we have nowhere else to go. And we ask that you would unleash heaven by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is where Peter meets Jesus. Really. I mean, this is where he really meets him. Now, they've met before. If you do have a Bible, if you look at chapter 4, verse 38 through 39, you'll find that that Jesus healed Simon, or Peter's mother-in-law. So this is their second encounter. But this is where it got real personal, because look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So he was acquainted with Jesus, but here's where it got real personal. Now, look what happens when you have a real genuine encounter with Jesus. Look at verse 11. You ready? And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is stunning. What happened? Well, let's look at verses 6 and 7. Here's what happened. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners, which were the other sons of thunder, and the other boats to come and help them. And they came, and the, the fish filled both boats, so they began to sink. This is astonishing, because one commentator said this. This is akin to winning the lottery. If you're a fisherman, I mean, this is like a day trader who buys trades every morning, hoping against hope for the lucky day when their stocks will jump dramatically in price before nightfall, and he makes a windfall. Peter is a fisherman. This is who he is. This is his deepest identity. And he just hit the jackpot. He hit the mother load. He hit the fishing lottery. Not only is he set for life financially, but he is a success in his career. He just won the Super Bowl of fishing. He just beat every fishing record on that lake. Now, I have a great uncle from Minnesota who still has the fishing record on that lake. This is a big deal, folks. A very big deal. My family tells me all the time, from Minnesota, the Vikings. Now, he's a success. He's a fisherman. He's a great fisherman. So verse 11 is stunning. Look at it again. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You've got to be kidding me. This is the epitome of who he is the highest sense of his accomplishment, a financial payload that puts he and his family forever in security. And he walks away. What we are seeing in this passage, y'all, is that Peter changed completely. He changed to the very core of his being. He changed at his very identity. He changed. Now, what we need to see here, this kind of change is normal Christianity. Normal Christianity. Verse 11 is normal stuff in the Christian world. Verse 11 <clears throat> is what this text calls every Christian to. 
Verse 11 is after everybody in this room. That we change completely down at the core of who we are at our deepest identity. This is normal Christianity. And what I want you to think, and I know that some of you are thinking, listen, I've tried everything. I've done everything to try to leave everything and follow Jesus. I just can't do it. I keep messing up. I keep going backwards. I don't go forwards. And I, quite frankly, I'm tired of trying, and I don't know how to do it anymore. I don't know what to do anymore. I am genuinely and honestly perplexed at how to live the Christian life. I want to leave everything and follow him, and I can't do it. Others, you are tired of pretending. You don't want to leave everything and follow Jesus. And you don't want to pretend that you do. I don't want to leave everything and follow Jesus. That scares me to death. Besides, every time I do, I get nothing but heartache. Others of you don't want to leave everything to follow Jesus because you're not convinced that Christianity is true and you're not convinced that Christianity is worth it, right? In other words, when you hear this, you say, this sounds completely oppressive. I mean, I'm going to lose myself. I lose my individuality. I lose my personalness. What, this scares the daylights out of me. This sounds completely oppressive. This sounds like I'm going to be this puppet or I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to be. I'm afraid of what it means I'm going to be. And we also think we're going to lose the fun stuff. We're going to lose the good stuff. We're going to lose things we like. We're going to lose things that we enjoy. <clears throat> and then some of us, we think this is oppressive because you know Christians and you're like, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be a humbug. I don't want to walk around thinking I'm always superior to everybody. Morally, I don't want that. Here's the point in this passage. A genuine encounter with Jesus always changes you. Let me say it again. A genuine, real encounter with Jesus always changes you. The question is how? Because what goes for a lot of change might not necessarily come from a genuine, real encounter with Jesus. And the question is, why? Why would you want this? Why would we want this? Why would we want verse 11? Well, let's get going. Are you ready? When Jesus feels the force of the crowd pressing in on him and he spies Peter on the shore, you know what Jesus does? He cashes in on an important societal virtue that Peter is obliged to keep. You know what that is? In the Mediterranean world, they had the societal virtue of returning favors. So when we find Jesus encountering Peter, he just healed Peter's mother-in-law. Peter owes him big time. And maybe Peter's sad about it. It's his mother-in-law. He doesn't want to return the favor now. Oh, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> My mother-in-law's in Dallas. She will never hear this, hopefully. <clears throat> and you better not send this tape to her. So Peter 
is obliged. He's not going to turn down Jesus' request. Now, I want you to get what this means for Peter, though. He's been fishing all night. He's absolutely exhausted. It delays his sleep. I know some of you are not morning people. And I know what you're like in the morning because I got a whole household of them. This is not good. Not good at all. Not only that, it delays him eating. So when you combine no sleep, I'm living with someone right now who gets no sleep. Combined with, well, she is eating, barely. When you combine those two, that's something else. No eating, but also notice what this means. More work for him. Now, how long is he going to preach? How long did he preach? But notice what he has to do. Peter's got to man the boat close enough to shore so the people could hear, but keep it there rowing so it doesn't go back out by the tide. So this is no like sitting in one of those little paddle boats in a tank out here in Texas. This is, he's manning the oars close enough to shore so Jesus can teach, but far enough so that he doesn't get pulled out. So Peter knows what's going on. And then when you get to verse 4, this really, I mean, this tries all of Peter's Middle Eastern societal politeness to the top. Look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And this just about did it for Peter. Jesus is a land lover from the highlands of Nazareth. He's a carpenter. The text doesn't tell us, but for all Peter knows, and for all we know, this is the first time Jesus even got in a boat. Peter is a seaman. But not only that, he's the captain of the seamen. Do you see? All he had to do is give hand signals. Everybody looked to him for cues. Peter was the leader of the sons of Zebedee. This is a rowdy, tough group of men. These are not philosophers. I'm not saying philosophers aren't tough. Just saying. These are fishermen. They work with their hands. They bend things and break things and they kill things. Okay? And he has a land lover telling him how to fish. Oh, but it's worse because Peter knows that the reason why they fished at night, all night, because that's the only way you catch fish in the Sea of Galilee because they feed at night. Because during the day they hide under the rocks. But he also knows that the reason why we stay close to shore and Jesus says goes out into the deep is that they also know the experienced fishermen in this area, that where the oxygen-rich waters are freely flowing into the lake or into the sea or coming from the streams and rivers, so they fish in those places close to shore. So this is a double whammy. Jesus is saying, go out at day <laughs> and go into the deep. Now look at the translation here in verse 5. I love this. So you don't get it in the English. You don't get it in most translations here. Because I think there's still, I think some people have a hard time sometimes with the gutsiness and the grit of the, of the scriptures. The master, that could literally, literally be translated boss or chief. Master sounds so respectful, doesn't it? But Peter basically could be saying, okay, chief. In fact, Kenneth Bailey, who's a Middle Eastern scholar, and he wrote a book called Jesus Through the Middle Eastern Eyes, he says this. This is how he takes Peter saying this. He says, you rabbis think you know everything. (laughs) 
And now you order me to fish during the day in deep water. Very well. Let's go out and see who knows what about fishing, boss. That's the tone. But remember, he's trying to keep as constrained as he can. Because this is a favor and this is a, a polite culture. But then they hit the fishing lottery. Gosh, can you imagine? And friends, this is where it's extremely shocking. Because if you follow me so far, and if that's the accurate reading of the text, what happens next is absolutely stunning. Because Peter makes no comment about the fish. He doesn't say, wow, unbelievable. He doesn't make a hand signal to someone on the shore. Go tell my wife, go tell my mother-in-law, we just hit the jackpot. There is nothing here except depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Here's what happens. Real greatness, this is not the point. Remember our point. A genuine encounter with Jesus always changes your life. Always. And I'm talking Christian. As we have genuine encounters with Jesus, our lives continue to change, okay? I'm not just talking about the beginning. I'm talking about the ongoing. But here, here's what I want us to see in this encounter right here. Real greatness always uncovers impersonating greatness. When I was in campus ministry, I spent my summers, most of my summers at beach resorts, evangelizing, discipling, teaching evangelism, discipling college students from all over the country. One summer, I was in Virginia Beach. And at Virginia Beach, just down the road is Norfolk. And Norfolk has the world's largest naval base in the world. I just said that. I've got Shaner's disease this morning. I think preachers just have that disease, quite frankly. You speak so much. But we had what was called a staff hunt. You know what that is? There's 20 staff and there's 75 students. So what the staff was called the staff hunt. The staff would dress up and take a role in the community and the students would try to find the staff in the community. So some would go in and say, hey man, can I flip burgers? Some would go in and try to work at this and do that and dress up and do that. Well, as soon as I know what we were doing, we said, we're going to do it in, uh, what did I just say, Norfolk. We're going to do it in Norfolk. So it was a no-brainer for me. I went around to all the thrift shops and got all the garb of a, of a sailor. And then I got this big cigar. We went into Norfolk, and I went in and just mingled with all the sailors. Every student walked by me. Every one of them. I had some students, I'd look out of the corner of my eye, and I would see them looking at me, and they talked to each other. Like, do we go, dare go up and approach this person and see if it is someone? And so when that happened, I'd just puff on my cigar a little more, and they'd go away. <laughs> Nobody found me except a bunch of sailors and MPs. All of a sudden, I'm surrounded by a bunch of sailors and MPs because they saw that my uniform didn't match. I had mixed summer and winter uniforms in my collage of putting together something. <laughs> so this is what they thought. They thought 
This is an intoxicated sailor who's about ready to cause trouble and bring disrepute upon the Navy. And they're always out for that in the community. So you imagine my conversation there, huh? Well, actually, I'm, I'm a campus minister. <laughs> Here's my point. The real thing always uncovers impersonations. Always. Do you see what's happening here? When real greatness shows up to Peter, Peter's impersonating greatness is exposed. When real greatness shows up, Peter is uncovered as an imposter. And he says, he feels small and he feels little and he feels non-great and he feels weak and he feels powerless and he feels, I'm not in control. I'm flawed to my being, deeply messed up. And so what does he say? Depart from me. Get away from me. You make me feel like a failure at the depths of my being. Leave me. One well-known pastor talks about Peter's predicament this way. He said, if you build your self-image and your identity and your life on the idea that you're a pretty good person, better than most, any reminder of your sin, any reminder of your failure will automatically feel like you're in the middle of an emotional death. When you find anything that shows your weakness and flaws and failures in you, you're going to say to God, you're going to say to other people, you're even going to say to yourself, depart from me. Get away from me. Peter lived the radical, insecure life of trying to be great. That was his life. He was trying to be okay. He was trying to be secure. He was trying to be somebody. He was trying not to be a failure. He was trying to justify his existence by being a great fisherman and being a great leader and being a good person. And we even get another whiff of that when we get to Galatians and that he wants to be a great apostle in the eyes of the follow-up team and the Jerusalem boys. Struggled with it his whole life. The reason why Peter saw, I mean, the reason why Paul saw it so clearly in Peter is because Paul struggled with it his whole life. But when real greatness showed up, Peter was revealed for who he was in his own eyes. He finally saw it. I am weak. I am small. I am little. I am flawed. I have faults. I am so messed up. I am not in control. And it was an emotional death. Now, I want to speak to those of you that do not want to leave everything and follow Jesus right now. I want to have an honest moment conversation with you. You don't want to. You don't want to leave everything. You don't even know what that means and everything that just scares you. And if you're a Christian, you feel the same way. Here's what I want to say to you. You are following something right now. And it is oppressive. It's not a, I'll follow Jesus or I'll follow nothing. 
Every single person in this room is following something and leaving everything behind to try to find what they believe is the meaning of life. And what gives you a sense of value and worth, what really is your salvation. And what you're following is oppressive. Because when when you fail it, and when you feel, when you're exposed before it because you can't keep its standards, you can't keep the, the protocol, when you fail whatever you're following, it says to you in the deepest parts of your soul, depart from me. And so let's say you're Peter. Let's say it just happens to be Peter. I mean, it could be anything. But let's say for Peter, it's his greatness. For Peter, it's his performance. For Peter, it's his success and his achievement. So imagine now, when he fails that, what does he hear deep in his soul? What does he say to himself when he doesn't meet his performance? Depart from me. Get away from me. He throws himself overboard. All right. What I want to say is this, impersonating greatness never gives you a good life, never gives you security. You never get the good stuff that you think you're going to leave if you follow Jesus. So the issue is, where is the real good stuff? Now, when we, when we look at what Jesus says to Peter, this is very fascinating because Jesus does not correct Peter. Do you see that? Peter says... I'm a sinner. Depart from me. And Jesus does not say, no, Peter, you're not sinful. No, Peter, you're not weak. No, Peter, you need a better self-image, brother. No, Peter, you're not powerless. You're not helpless. You're not messed up. You're not sinful. You're not deeply flawed. You're not riddled at the core of your being with, with a twisted, perverted power called sin. No, what does he say? You are. Yes, you are, brother. You are. And then notice what he says. But don't be afraid. I'm your friend. I'm your friend. Because Peter, I am a friend of sinners. This is why and how Peter left everything to follow Jesus. At Peter's deepest exposure as a failure, at Peter's deepest exposure as a sinner, at Peter's deepest exposure of being a flawed person, at Peter's deepest exposure of really legitimately deserving to hear a cosmic depart from me from the only one who really matters. When that happens, when that should happen, Peter encounters real Christianity. Jesus loves me. And it got Peter. Jesus loves a mess. Jesus loves a sinner. Jesus loves a weak, powerless, not in control, deeply flawed person. And three years later, Peter learns exactly how deep And how deep the roots of Jesus' love were for him, actually. 
Next week, we're going to see the flip side of it. Here's where we see the beginning. But before the flip side, before he hits the flip side and he sees how deep these roots of Jesus' love go for him. Because he does see it. Because what ends up happening is he watches in the flip side. He watches Jesus willingly and gladly bow his head and step into the cosmic fury of God's rejection for him. In other words, Peter watches Jesus here at the cross from God himself depart from me. So that Peter hears forever, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I love you messed up Peter. That's real Christianity. And you know what? That beats the fishing lottery. So it was easy for Peter to say, what, I'm going to build my life on some fish? On being a great fisherman, of having the record on the lake? That's going to make me significant and give me salvation? I'll leave that, and I'll follow your love. And I'll follow it anywhere. And if you notice, Peter says it over and over again. He's the first one that says, no, I'll follow you. No, you're not going to the cross. I'll go to the cross for you. And then we start seeing how Peter leans into his greatness again, right? And all it took was a little girl saying, hey, are you with that guy? Uh Uh-uh, not me. Fear man. Jesus has to ask him at the resurrection, Peter asked him three times because he was denied three times. He denied Jesus three times. Can you imagine? Peter, do you love me? (laughs) A genuine encounter with Jesus always changes you. It becomes real easy to leave everything and follow him when you know he loves you as a messed up, sinful, weak, insignificant, small, little, not in control, not having power, having no strength, but made for Jesus' love. Do not be afraid. I love sinners.